Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Zoe Wild. Before we get to Zoe, I want to tell you about the website. It is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. Check out the articles that I've written, articles that some of the other guests have written about travel and some destinations and so on and so forth. Go there, check that out. You could also see photos of our guests. You can see links to their websites and links to their social media. You can also click on links to our social media, and that is, of course, our Facebook page, Travel Tales Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, and Twitter, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. You can also write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. You can click on links to Stitcher Radio where you can subscribe to this and also to iTunes where you can subscribe for free. And give us a good rating, will you? That helps people find the show, and that's always a cool thing. If you could do that, I would appreciate it. I apologize for the echo that I'm uh, speaking to you in. I am not in my usual home studio. I've been moved around a little bit, and I have big news coming up about my home. I will tell you that in a later episode when more of it unfolds. It's, uh, I'm going to keep you in suspense. But first, I'm going to describe how I got Zoe Wild on this show. Zoe, I met through our friend Rachel Reenstra, who was on the show back in its early days, a few years ago. She said, my friend Zoe's in town from Sedona, Arizona. She's accepting a humanitarian award for her work with Syrian refugees, and she'd be perfect for the podcast. And I said, nope. That doesn't sound like anyone I want to meet. (laughs) I said, no, of course, I would love to meet her. And uh, she was too busy when she was here, so we couldn't get an interview while she was in L.A., but she told me she was going to be in a couple weeks' time at a wedding in Idlewild, California, a place I've always wanted to go but never have been. And if I wanted to join her in this wedding where she didn't know many people, uh, I could interview her there. But the catch was it's at a campground And I had to bring a tent and a sleeping bag, of which I did. I scrounged one up. I got borrowed a tent and a sleeping bag and uh, drove two hours to Idlewild, California, which is a beautiful place if you've never been. Uh, It's in the mountains just west of Palm Springs. It's about 6,000 feet elevation and uh, just gorgeous. Lots of hiking trails, great for biking, camping, all the outdoorsy stuff. Very peaceful, cool up in the mountains. Very nice. And we had a, a good time at the wedding, and in the next day, before we drove our separate ways, I got her to sit down and talk about her life, which has been pretty pretty extraordinary. She grew up right outside of Boston, went to a monastery in Burma, or Myanmar, whatever you'd like to call it, to study meditation. And she did that for two years at a monastery in Burma, and really incredible stuff, and came back, became a grief counselor and a life coach, among other things, and taught meditation. And she's got a book coming out about meditation. And she saw the crisis, the humanitarian crisis that was happening in Europe with the Syrian refugees. Uh, Really tragic what's going on over there. And she was so moved, she just went over there and helped out. 
and started raising money and created her own charity organization, onelightglobal.org, where you can give money, and it goes right to the efforts to help Syrian refugees. And she's doing great work over there. And that's why she was getting her award. We talk about that. And we also talk about her life in Sedona, which is a place I've only been to, I think, only once many years ago. So we talk about that. Really interesting. I'm glad uh, I met her, and I'm glad uh, we got to sit down and talk. And then you can enjoy uh, learning about her life and hopefully be inspired, as I was, to uh, give a little more of yourself and help others. It's a great way to live, and we need more people like her, and we should be a little more like her, I think. So please enjoy my chat with the lovely and inspiring Zoe Wild. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic I should set the scene of where we're at. We're in the middle of uh, a campground in Idlewild, California, a place I've never been before. Have you been before? No, I've been both idle and wild, but I've never been to Idlewild. <laughs> I had neither, but it's beautiful up here. We're about 6,000 feet elevation mm-hmm. in meters. People listening overseas, I have no idea what that is. But we went to a wedding for friends of yours mm-hmm. that you met doing uh, work with refugees in Syria, correct? Uh, we weren't in Syria. Luckily, we were um, actually in Greece on an island off the coast of Turkey, and we were meeting boats and rafts as they came um, over to try to get into the EU. Okay, let's give it the uh, the background, people. What is your job title, and give us the name of your organization. Well, since December, uh, my life has changed radically, and now I've founded and am the CEO of One Light Global which is a humanitarian organization working with the refugee crisis around the world. And it just started this year, earlier in 2016. Yeah, it actually it started with me going to volunteer for what I thought would just be two weeks. I thought I'd slip in, slip out, no one would ever be the wiser. And instead, my entire life was changed. Why now and why Syria, as opposed to, did you work with any other refugee organizations before this? I haven't worked with refugees before. I have done a lot of service work in my life, and I work with veterans. I've worked with bereaved children, and I um, I love doing trauma work um, with people, trauma healing work, because I've had some PTSD in my own life. I was uh, an eyewitness to the World Trade Center attacks, and I was also in Burma during the uprising. But um, there wasn't... This this turn of events was not something that I thought out. It was more that life took me in this way. So like many people, I was hearing about what was happening with the Syrian refugee crisis and the war in Syria. And then um, on Facebook, started to see videos of people trying to escape. And um, at some point, I saw a video of a raft that went down. And I just knew that I couldn't live in integrity anymore and not do anything about this to help these people. It felt like, you know, if they were my family, I would go over there. So I really believe we're one human family. So I went. So you live in Sedona, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Let's start from the beginning. You grew up uh, around Boston, right? I did. And was... Boston. Boston. Southie? Northie? Westie. Westie. (laughs) Did, um, Did, like, charity work and service run in your family? Was that like passed down from your parents? Did they do that kind of stuff? I would say my parents are both very generous people. And um, 
my mom, you know, in her retirement, did a lot with Habitat for Humanities, so she would lead trips. And so, yeah, it was it was a part of our. I was brought up to care about other people. Yeah. And this wasn't through uh, like religion or a church or oh, something, God, no. so to speak. <laughs> I wasn't raised religious. Okay. Yeah. So this just came out of uh, wanting to do good because it's the right thing to do, not just because somebody preached it or whatever, or it was, you you weren't ordered to do it, basically. This came out from you. Yeah, it hurts when other people are in pain. Right. So my parents definitely raised us um, feeling that travel was an important part of our education. So I got to travel a lot as a kid. Where did you go as a family? Um, we went to Europe a lot when oh, I was growing great. up. Yeah, we went to Italy and Greece and um, England a number of times. And um, I'm probably I'm probably forgetting a lot. But we did travel was a definitely a value that they had. They felt that you should see the world and and learn about other cultures. And um, and I was just always wild. I was always independent. I always wanted to run away. You know, I wanted to grow up fast. <laughs> and then there were certain events that happened that led me to want to leave really fast. What do you remember from your first trips abroad? And how did it make you look at your home or America different than if you had never gone? Oh, what a great question. I think I just always knew that there was so much out there that was different. So in a way, I never... I think people, when they don't get to see that, you kind of get stuck in a rut of thinking this is just the way it is and there is one way to live life and by seeing so many different ways of of how to live and how people live it gave me a flexibility and an openness and an adaptability so other than uh europe when was your first trip to asia because i know you studied buddhism correct yeah i wouldn't say i studied i would say i practiced meditation but i went to asia when i was 23 I um, had a crisis and discovered meditation, and I took to it like a fish to water. And so I went to Burma. I thought I would go to India, and I told someone, and they said, no, India's passe. Go to Burma. And I couldn't have told you where Burma was on a map before that. But I said, okay, and I sold my stuff, and I went to Burma, and I didn't know if it would be for three months or three years or the rest of my life. Was it still called Burma then, or was is it... Was it Myanmar at that point? It depends who you ask. Both names are problematic. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So Burma was given by the British, but it was just basically the largest minority group is called the Bamar. So they called it Burma, but that doesn't allow for, you know, acknowledge all of the other groups, of which there are many. And then Myanmar is the name that the junta gave it. So You were into meditation. Yeah. And you got into it in America. Mm-hmm. How did you... I mean, is there a certain level you get to before you go and study? And No, I just showed up. I had been living in Los Angeles mostly before that. So I had like long blonde hair and I just showed up with my suitcase and this address and I went to this monastery in the middle of nowhere, Kontalapong Village. And um, basically this guy with like a mustache and the little, like he had the mole with the long hair out of it. And he like <laughs> poked his head out the gates and he was like, would you like to stay here? And I went, yes, please. And then I went in and changed my life forever. So uh, how long were you in the monastery? I was there almost two years. Two years? Almost. That's amazing. Yeah. So it was a blessing. What did they, uh, 
what did you take other than uh, meditation? What did you take away from your time in the monastery and in Burma? My life entirely changed after the monastery. I mean, it was like a 180. So, I mean, I got everything ever, you know, from that. And But as a travel destination, I would say one really amazing thing was because Burma at that time, though now it's changed a bit since it opened up, um, was like going back in time 100 years, you know, like ox drawn carts down dirt roads and... Um, because the junta had kept the people so isolated for so many decades, about 30 years, um, there was this profound um, sweetness and innocence that hadn't been westernized. And, um, and so they were, they were so kind and so generous. And literally, you know, every day they, I'd never been in a Buddhist country before. And they, you know, they go and they go to their temple in the morning and the evening and they chant and they say, may all my good deeds from today be shared with all beings. And so there's, I learned as much from the people as I did from the meditation in the sense of just, it was, it was such a different world than I'd ever been in and full of so much kindness, genuine kindness. What's a typical day? for you in a, in a monastery. I mean, you get up at a certain hour every day and isn't, don't, um, the monks have to do some kind of service in the community or something like that, or I have no idea. How does this work? Yeah. So there are many different traditions of Buddhism and the tradition I was practicing, practicing, and it's called Theravada Buddhism, which is the original teachings of the Buddha. And so it's, it's much more simple than like the practices of, um, Zen or Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana. But um, basically, you just sit, walk, sit, walk all day for 21 hours. Walk. And um, You walk? Yeah, you sit for an hour and then you walk for an hour and then you sit for an hour and then you walk for an hour. And they're just different meditation postures. And you have a, you wake up usually around 3.30 and then you have a, a brief meal at sunrise. It's usually some kind of soup. And then... Um, at 10.30, you have a, another meal that is like rice and chicken. I don't eat meat, but they did. And otherwise, it's sort of like boiled cabbage and rice or noodles. It wasn't very exciting diet-wise. <laughs> Sometimes there were rocks in the beans. Oh, and, no. um, <laughs> um But yeah, so... And then you're just meditating all day. You know, it's it's so simple so that you can really go deeply into observing the nature of mind and emotions and physicality and the nature of reality. When you say walking, is it like walking around the grounds or walking distances or how does that work? It's walking around the monastery. Mainly, usually, it's you just actually pick a short patch, like 10 feet, and just walk back and forth. This is fascinating to me. So how many other women were there besides you? That's a good question. Um, I would say, actually, probably the majority. So of the monastics, the majority were monks and not nuns. But of the majority of the lay people were women because they can, you know, they have time. The men are working. Mm-hmm. Um, and about half of the people there were Burmese or more. And then there was a large Korean contingent of Korean nuns, bhikkhunis they're called. And um, there was a, a large Vietnamese contingent, a very small Chinese contingent, and a Malaysian contingent. And then just a handful of Europeans. And I was often the only American, but there were... It would come and go. So, yeah, I don't know how many people there were. So in terms of uh, communicating and things like that, is there 
like in some monasteries, vows of silence? Do you, is there communication? Do you, did they know English? Did you know the local language? I didn't. I spoke a little bit of Burmese eventually, but I actually at one point wanted to learn Burmese and my teacher said, you're not here to learn Burmese. You're here to meditate. So that ended that. Um, but I can say Mingalaba, the Kanyela, the Kambale, sort of like, hi, how are you? Um, I'm fine. But um, you're not there to talk, but we were allowed to talk a little bit. My teacher was a little bit radical in his teaching in that he really wanted us to learn. He had been a monk and a layperson, and so he felt that the best way to learn how to meditate was to be able to meditate doing anything in every moment. And so he was not... Most Theravada monasteries, they'll teach you how to walk very slowly, and there are definitely benefits to that. But he said, you know, if you do that, then as soon as you start walking at a regular pace, you're going to lose your awareness. So better to just dive into the deep end, essentially, and start learning how to be aware all the time. So he was he also wanted us to learn how to be aware while we're talking, which is actually incredibly enlightening. You realize you're really just a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> You think you're talking, but you're not. And also listening. You know, listening meditation is, is incredibly profound. Two years. So during this time... Almost, did, almost. Almost two years. Did you have contact with your family and friends back in the States? I did. I wrote letters. Okay, you wrote letters. So this I was... was... E- I would occasionally would go into town and email. They only had electricity for a few hours a day. And to call was like $5 a minute or something. So only occasionally I had calls with my family. Were they behind you in this, or were they worried about you? Oh, yeah, they were great. I remember when I told my mom I became an, a Buddhist nun. I mean, I was raised, you know, pretty much atheist, agnostic, maybe. And she was like, oh, that's great. What do you wear? <laughs> um, but yeah, What no. do you wear? I mean, robes, I guess. Yeah, you have a robe and a sash. And I sh- you, know, you shave your head. In, Vietnam, in Thailand, rather, they shave their eyebrows, but we don't do that in Burma. Um, but... Yeah, they were, they were, my family was always wonderfully, wonderfully supportive. So after two years, was, is it like a, I don't want to say a program, but is that like a, a normal amount of time or did you leave because you knew it was time to leave? It was all on your own? Yeah, it was time. I, um, I was there from 2006 to 2008. So at the end of my time there was when the uprising happened. Which, you know, a lot of people left at that point because they were afraid and um, we had to, all of the local monks and nuns had to leave because they were, they were burning them alive and doing terrible things to them. So they had to leave. So there were only about 20 of us. And so I, I kind of stayed through that. And then um, I had a lot of insight during that time. And, and at that time also, I just realized that you know, I could stay blissed out in the monastery really easily, but I needed for my own personal growth to test this out in the real world. And so it was mainly that. And also it was just time. I missed my family and my, I wanted to go live life and take what I learned and apply to life. And oh, and also I just really wanted to share it because I had been suffering so much before and I had found so much peace and so many answers that I'd been looking for for so long. And so I wanted to share that with other people that were suffering the way I had been before. So did you? was your idea to come back to the U.S. to teach meditation? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. I just, um, I actually came back and I, was, I became a Buddhist chaplain. So a chaplain is not a monk? 
Right. So a chaplain is a spiritual advisor. Um, most people think of them and automatically think Catholic, but actually they're all different traditions. And, um, you know, they can be at colleges, they're in hospitals, they're in a lot of places. But at that time, I thought I might want to be a sort of death doula and help people die, actually, and help their families. Um, like for comfort and peace on their final days, that kind of thing? That and... You know, with the families, there's two very different processes, right? With the, there's what's happening with the person who's dying, and then there's also what's happening with the family as the person dies. And um, in our culture, we really hide that and ignore it. And so then it kind of comes as a shock, and people don't know how to handle that and how to handle grief and loss. And so um, that's what I thought I wanted to do. So that was when I was volunteering with bereaved children, and I was a chaplain, and I also... So actually, when I came back to the States, I um, life is long. It's hard to remember everything. <laughs> when I came back to the States, I did more long silent retreats. And I did like a fully silent retreat for three months. And I did, I did lots of retreats. And then... Uh, teaching, teaching them or going out on no, them? No, no, no. Just more retreats. Oh, okay. More silent retreats. I think teaching spirituality is kind of a, it's kind of a humorous idea. Anyway, <laughs> at a certain point. And in another way, it's, you know, beautiful. But, um... But more than wanting to teach people spirituality, I wanted to be able to ease people that were suffering by sharing these things that had so generously been shared with me. Because at the monastery, you stay for free. Everything is free. And, um, and the only reason these teachings exist is because people have passed them down because they work. And so um, I thought I might want to be a psychologist, but I didn't want that. And so I didn't like that model. And, um, and so I became a coach as well. And then also at that time, I met my Sufi teacher and became a Sufi minister over the next couple of years. So for people who don't know, uh, define Sufi. Sufi is a tough one to explain. Um, but basically, Sufis are mystics. Um, they say the religion of the Sufi is the cry of the heart. But it's a, it's a mystical tradition. And I would say the mystical traditions of all the religions have much more in common with each other than they do with the particular religion that they're attached to. So it's a, it's a, a path of finding the voice of the mystery within your own heart and following that. Now, when you came back from Burma, was that to California? Yeah, I came back to the Bay Area, actually, because I'd heard about this chaplaincy program and I knew that I wanted to do that. Um, and also it seemed a bunch of my friends had been there and had moved there. And so I did some retreats there. I did some retreats in the Boston area and then I moved back to San Francisco. Well, I moved to San Francisco permanently. And how, how long have you been in Sedona? I've been in Sedona two and a half years. I've only been there like once or twice and I've heard about all the, uh, there's a lot of the vortex stuff. There's a lot of new age thinking, a lot of mist, a lot of, um, yeah, all that stuff. That must've been a big appeal for you, right? And the, it's beautiful. I would say the nature was the bigger appeal. Um, but what happened actually was that I was living up by the Russian River at this point. And in Northern California. In Northern California, in Sonoma County. And I love Sonoma County. And I love where I was living on the Russian River. And I love the Redwoods. And I love the coast. And I wasn't planning on moving anywhere. And actually, my boyfriend and I were going to move into a house together and I was meditating one day and this voice that I know very well inside said you will move to Sedona and I sort of said what I've never even been to Sedona and it said you will move to Sedona and I said well if that's what you want <laughs> you know me you have to make it really obvious and so within a few weeks um I got three really clear signs and I said okay so I one of the things was that the house that we were moving into we'd already given notice where we were separately 
and they said, oh, we're not going to rent it. And then the last one was that my boyfriend, I, who'd never lived anywhere but Sonoma County, um, was like, I turned to him and I said, I, I think I have to move to Sedona. This is going to sound really weird, honey. You know, and he was like, great, let's go. So we moved to Sedona. Is, is he still there? He's also still there. Yeah, we're friends. That's great. Yeah, um, he loves it. So how did you, now did you uh, study meditation again there or teach or do anything? And how did you spend your days in Sedona up until now? How do you? Let's let's take a big dive into Lake Zoe here. Well, they're different. <laughs> do you want to know what I did do or what I do now? Well, what did you start doing when you when you first got there? So for six years, so in, I did the same thing I did in California, which was spiritual life and business coaching. Okay. And also I started doing um, healing and memories, volunteer work with veterans. Okay. So before we get to uh, Syria and what you're doing now, mm-hmm. one last thing on meditation and so for people who have heard about it and also Buddhism, where do you suggest they go or something they read or something like that? That's a great question. And I like I honestly don't have a have a book that I really like to recommend to people, so I'm writing one right now. Interesting. So, yeah. So Exclusive, folks, right here in the Travel Tales podcast. Right here. So there'll be a book out very soon called Wild Meditation. So if you're listening to the archives, um, <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can actually go to wildmeditation.com. And my online course is there, which you can take for a very reasonable fee. And um, Well, it was free. It was free, but I had to put so much into it. Um, but it's, you know, it's like 108 bucks for like right. a four, four week course that can totally change your life. And it really is about how to meditate in every single moment. And not only that, but I just found when I came back to the West, I found that the way they were teaching meditation to Westerners was actually often very detrimental to them, or it just wasn't what I was taught. It was like, making them more controlling or you know we've all met like the meditative asshole you know or, like the yogi <laughs> asshole like that's not where you should be going if it's not making you more loving and more wise and more happy then it's um not happy happiness comes and goes but there's this underlying piece um then you know watch it try something else um and also just because i'd been to asia and also here i saw that <laughs> The Buddha teaches different things. So he teaches that you should relax, but also that you should be alert, you know. And in Asia, maybe sometimes they need more of the, like, just because of the culture, the, like, work harder, work harder. But then you come to the West and you're telling people work harder and work harder. But what you really need to teach them is relax, 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 relax. No, keep relaxing. Just stop. Just (laughs) relax. So that was like, I put that on Facebook. I was like, if I had one wish for humanity, it would be that we could all just relax. Um, (laughs) Um... this, by the way, from someone who hustled me out of my tent at 7 in the morning to go immediately go on a hike. Well, that was one of the things my teacher used to say. His teacher <laughs> was, like, very old and very frail. And he, um, you know, he would say, my teacher would walk fast. Same thing with Thich Nhat Hanh, people say. I've never met him, but I love his, some of his books. But, um, you know, you can be fast but still be still inside. I'm not saying that I'm like that all the time. I'm just saying that's the that's the aim. It's not that you're always slow. It's that inside there's stillness. And that's exactly what meditation is about. It's also about, um, this thing might be, I'm so excited about it. The only thing that's gotten in the way is, you know, the whole refugee crisis. Yeah. But um, it's like also about getting in touch with that part of you that is undomesticated, that essential nature, that wild self. 
that is not like wild and crazy, but that is free from all of the things you've been taught that you are and who you are and how we should be. This comes back to the beginning of the interview that like when you go other places, you can see like, oh, maybe I don't have to be like that. Like even I've heard that like we used to sleep sitting up in the Middle Ages, but we take it for granted that we sleep lying down. You know, like there are so many things like that where you can just start to come back to that essential self and move from that. And I believe that's the key to peace, not only in our own lives, but with each other, like to finding the solutions. Everything in nature comes into harmony eventually with its surroundings because it's coming from its natural way of being. And so if we can come, as humans can come from our natural essence, I believe we would come into harmony with all of nature around us and with our environment. Well, that's great. Well, speaking of a place that needs harmony, let's go to Syria now. Um, yeah. When in, you were just in L.A., mm-hmm. where I almost met you, uh, receiving an award. Tell us about the award you got. I was um, honored to receive a presidential call-to-service award, which is a, an award for service given out by Barack Obama um, for people that have performed, I think, over 4,000 hours of service, something like that. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. I also became a Kentucky colonel in the great state of Kentucky and a companion of merit in the Knights of the Order of St. Lazarus of Jerusalem. (laughs) I said that all without taking a breath. I know. A Kentucky colonel? Okay, explain that one. How how does one become a Kentucky colonel? It's the highest honor from the mayor's office. It's also, they're all for service. And people nominate you, I guess, and then it's a great honor in the great state of Kentucky. Weren't you getting something from uh, Britain as well? Oh, the Knights of the Order. No, I, I got the Companion of Merit. And it was it was really, truly wonderful to be around so many people who've done so many amazing things, you know, from just in so many different walks of life. There's always different ways to give and to serve. And to I love seeing how everyone, when they find their own niche for that, you know, whether it's like helping kids out or going into prisons or helping the homeless or helping save, you know, street cats, whatever it is. It's like it's amazing to be around altruistic people that are that are doing it because it's hard i think some people think oh well you know i i don't have the time or i don't have the whatever i don't have the skills i can't do that you know but it's like none of us do I, we just work hard <laughs> we just work hard to do it what was the date of your first trip to syria so again i haven't been to syria unfortunately. oh i'm sorry uh, the refugee camps there right now right <laughs> they're all running away from there but yeah you went I to i'd been there 10 years ago yeah. oh yeah so you went to turkey right in greece I went to Greece first. Um, like I said, I just saw the videos and I knew I couldn't be in integrity with who I am and not doing anything anymore. And, and people often will ask, you know, well, like there's so much you could, like I just said, you know, I could work with the homeless in Sedona. I could, there's a million things, but I think you just have to go again where that wild, where your heart calls in the moment and I, and I also do other you know people are like, why don't you work with veterans I go actually I do work with veterans and then they feel really awkward um but um, <laughs> oh then carry on oh never mind and I love America and I appreciate America and that's a lot because I travel also isn't that an interesting knee-jerk thing? Like whenever I donate something to overseas, and and right. or when I, I did a charity trip to, I did a charity trip to South Africa, and yeah, there's this kind of knee-jerk American reaction. Well, you can't do something here. It's like yeah, it's, it's not an either-or situation. You can do both, you know. Well, and again, my whole one of the things I'm passionate about is uniting people as one human family, and that that we look that now at this time in history 
especially our problems, our global problems. You know, the environment is is a problem that we it's a challenge that we share, and so in order to come up with the solutions that work for everyone, we're going to have to work together across cultures. And same thing with with poverty and hunger. I mean, why do you think so? There's there's war refugees, but there's also an enormous. I mean, millions and millions of people are leaving North Africa for economic reasons and for you know. Now in Iraq, they're having this, you know, this heat wave, you know, and they're not going to be able to live there much longer. So for us to say, like, just focus on American problems is terribly short-sighted because they're, you can't displace that many people and not have them show up somewhere else. It's a scary time. And this kind of, like, rhetoric and politics is coming, it's sweeping across Europe as well. I was just there this summer, and there's a big right-wing movement, this shift that seems to be going on, and it seems to be a lot of it immigrant, a refugee-based, uh, and xenophobia, and there's racism as, as well. Did you find that when you go through Europe now? Yeah, I find both. I find both. I When someone, one of my friends wrote to me when I was in Lesbos, and he said, you know, what's it like over there? My first response was to read all my Facebook posts, but my second response was, um, you see the best and worst of humanity every day. And so I think, you know, they say the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. So the they're is seeing how horrible people can be to each other. And at the same time, there are so many incredible people from all over the world, totally selflessly coming, you know, spending their entire life savings. One of my team members, um, you know, spent his entire 401k to go over there and help, you know, people that have never taken a vacation in their lives and they get two weeks of vacation and they go over there. And so there's this incredible outpouring of compassion, and at the same time, there is this incredible fear and, and coming from... It's a time of choice. We have to choose. Do we want to come from a place of basically the Titanic is going down? Do I grab all of the resources that I can get and try to get the best seat and screw everyone else? You know, that's what the wall's about, right? Just enough for us. Right. Or do we say, look, the and then it's going to go down. <laughs> or do we yeah. say, like, the only way that this ship is has a chance of of being saved is if we all work together with all of these resources between all of us and all of our unique talents and skills. So what was the first date of your trip to Greece? When when did you do that? December 14th of last 2015. Um you get off the plane, you get to your first refugee camp. What were your what did you see? What hit you immediately and what struck you and affected you the most? Yeah, actually um I went straight to the beaches, and it was a time when thousands, like one or two thousand people was arriving a night. And so I spent, for the first two weeks, I would spend like 14 hours on the night, at the, on the beach at night, and then all day in the refugee camp. And um, what struck me was, honestly, the complete failure of the EU and the UN and the Greek government and the military. Um <laughs> to meet these people like that this were these were human beings it's it's amazing you go in lesbos i mean you feel like you could spit and hit turkey it is so close and yet hundreds and hundreds of people are losing their lives drowning children mostly children and women and you know these are families and the fact that it was like zoe from arizona and you know Susie from sweden or whatever their names are you know (laughs) like (laughs) you know on the beach at night with our cell phone, you know, with our little car headlights and, like, these people flashing their cell phone. Like, why was it us? What if we hadn't decided to come halfway around the world? Where where were the people? Where are the big NGOs that are supposed to be helping? You know, it was 
it was shocking to me to see that they would just let these people die. And then also at the camps too, this, um, I was in the south of the island, so Moria Registration Camp, they wouldn't call it a refugee camp because then they would have to provide more services. But same thing. I mean, I went around all night, like little kids out in the cold. I mean, sub-zero temperatures, um, people without medicine, without food, without water for days. I mean, like just sleeping out on the ground, you know, and burning plastic to stay warm and for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And like nothing, you know, it was this incredible failure and inefficiency. Was One Light Global established before you went or that came after you came back? No, I went as an independent volunteer, and I was so glad that I did. Um, I didn't go with any organization because I was able to do a lot of things. I wasn't stuck by bureaucracy or rules or anything. I so got, you literally just showed up? I mean, just showed up. I had, okay. yeah, I just showed up. I was, I um, I wrote. There were some, you know, Facebook groups and different things, and I wrote first to make sure because some, sometimes volunteers seem like more trouble than they're worth. But uh, everyone's like, please come, help, come. We don't have enough, which was true at that time. You know, it was horrible like we just did not have enough people and um you went soaking wet children coming off you know at night like you knew people with blankets you knew people with clothes and um and I just started posting on Facebook what I was seeing and to my great astonishment and it was really a life life I get teary thinking like I was life-changing um yeah it's so it's so moving um the response was enormous and in, I ended up extending my ticket, and, and in about a, a month, I got about over $60,000. Wow. And the average donation was 100 bucks. So it's not like I like four rich friends donating right. 20 grand no, each. It was like, amazing. I think our largest donation was 5000 but that was our largest by far. It was, well, and I say our, but it was just me, actually, <laughs> at that time. Though it felt like me and everyone. And, um... And I had always been this sort of independent, like, I'm going to go off to California at 16. I'm going to go off to Burma by myself, you know. And so I'd never felt this immense community support and this immense, like, I really got to see how much more we can do together. Because I couldn't have done it without that. Like, I mean, I could have been there. I could have been on the beaches. I could have been in the camp. But I couldn't have, like, bought all the supplies, bought all the tickets, bought all the food. Everything that I was doing, I was able to do. One person put it so beautifully on my Facebook page. They said, take your love, turn it into money, send it to Zoe, and she'll take it and she'll turn it back into love and give it to the people that need it most. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's that's it. Because it's it's about solidarity, right? It's about not like, oh, we're helping these poor people. It's like, we're all in this together. We're on this crazy little ball floating through space together. And can we see, like, can we just see that? And then, and I can't be free until everyone is free. It's not. It's not, I have rights that they don't. I have a lot of rights that they don't. I think people don't really get that in America. Like even just to live in Burma, like a country without infrastructure, like people don't. People yeah. don't get like how you just turn on much. the water and actually clean water comes out. Oh yeah, or like put a mail. You know, put mail. Like they would have like in the sidewalks were all broken. You know, and trees were like going across, which looks kind of cool. You know, but it, it causes problems when your buildings start <laughs> yeah. falling down and. Um, so people don't see that. And I'm not saying that we don't have a lot of problems in America. We do. But I think it's important to also see all of the things that our country does do for us. And also the fact that we can, like, go on Facebook and say, I hate America. And, like, be any, you know, I can worship chihuahuas if I want. Like, yeah. you know, whatever it is. So, Which uh, you do, by the way, well, very well. Yes. I just worship one chihuahua. <laughs> <laughs> so so how, long, how long was that first trip? How long were you there? 
a little over a month, and then I had to come back for some personal family reasons. And then um, what happened was when I came back, people were literally, this is what I mean, life took over. People were filling out forms for me to start an Arizona charity. Um, my community, um, a couple people in particular in, in Sedona, put on an enormous benefit. Um, so the thing was just going, like there was no stopping, you know, I had some significant things happening in my family and the thing was just going. So there was no point at which I could just stop. And also because I'd raised so much money at that point, I had to start a NGO or else the IRS was going to come after me. So, um, and it just has been going like that since just opportunity after opportunity, people after people, you know, connections. And so, so yeah. So then when, when I went back, um, so I, I would say I started, oh, and then we had a wonderful Humanity Healing International um, found out about us through another Facebook connection. God bless Facebook, you know. Humanity, and Humanity Healing? Humanity Healing International. They're a wonderful, wonderful NGO that's been doing amazing work for decades. And they um, and they also run Ohm Times Magazine. And they found out about us and they said, you know, we'll be your fiscal sponsor until you get your own 501c3. So... Um, so then we were under them so that people could make tax exempt donations, which really helps. And they've been my mentors in building this, um, building one light as well. And they've done that all selflessly. Um, you know, it's just really just extra work for them and they're really busy people. And so, um, so officially we started, yeah, I would say probably in February with all the paperwork and then. I went back to Turkey with a photographer and some and a team member and then some other team members came out and we started basically there are so many volunteers in Greece and there's about 60,000 refugees officially and um I thought you know if people are risking their lives and their children's lives to get to Greece how bad is it in Turkey you know and I know there's officially like 5 million refugees in Turkey um which is a lot more that you know and so i said let's go to turkey and only like half the refugees are children and only 20 percent of those are in school and so we went to istanbul and we started pulling kids off the street and putting them in school and then um it's a it's quite a long story but you know then we started a women's center um so that if the women can make money then the kids don't have to work which is what's happening because the turkish system well the factories will only hire children because they can exploit them and um so there was just immense amount of poverty and horrible camps and so then so we started working there and now we have those projects uh, the school and the women's center and then also now we have the bracelet I don't, I don't know if you want me to start going into all of our i was just wonder what is the biggest so in starting an ngo and then i went to lebanon Oh, you went to Lebanon after? I did. Actually, since this is a travel show, okay. brief interlude to say something about travel. Because one of the questions that I get the most is, um, isn't it dangerous? Isn't it too dangerous to go over there? Um, and I, I don't jinx myself, jeez. But um, I feel like one thing that I've learned repeatedly is that it's easy to get that fear, you know, it's easy to get that fear as people are talking about it. But when you go to the countries, it's not this dangerous. It's not that dangerous. Um, and also that, no, I'm going to die. Like next yeah. time. I know it's horrible. You're going to like listen that. to this in a year. But, um, that's the, 
that's the ethnic Jew coming at you. <laughs> um, but like the, it's usually certain parts. Yeah. So like everyone told me not to go to Lebanon. And then I went to Lebanon and I actually felt much safer there. Um, than in other places I'd been to, but you know, they, you don't go to South Lebanon. So, but it, you know, it's, it's a crapshoot wherever you are. Well, I was over there, you know, it was the shooting in Miami and the shooting in San Bernardino, you know? So you don't know. That was actually something my mom had said to me before I left for Greece the first time. Um, she'd said, you know, I said, oh, you know, a bomb went off in Athens. And she was like, oh, well, if you stay in Sedona, you might get hit by a car. Yeah. So inshallah, none of that happens. But uh, I, I encourage people to not, Go you know, do your research, really do your research. Talk to people that are living there. Talk to expats that are living there, and generally, I think you know, don't go to Syria, right? Um, don't go to Pakistan, maybe, but you or know, Afghanistan, like, uh, East Congo, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but um, but like, but there are most places don't don't take the the public, you know fear-mongering no that was one of the reasons uh that's a common theme in all of our in in all of our shows and yeah and oh really well no one of the reasons i started it i mean fear is a huge factor of why people especially americans don't go places i mean there's time factors there's there's a lot of stuff but yeah we've just done uh had a couple guests that were from mexico city and it's amazing how many uh, americans think mexico was so unsafe and it's just like anywhere. Parts of America are really unsafe. You know, you don't go to Compton when you've, if, if you judged everything by the That's news that came right. out of there. Yeah, or whatever it is. You know what I mean. You just, you just have street smarts, do your homework, and, you know, that's true of anywhere. Dog agrees with me. Totally. So that was actually something that was really had a profound impact on me was when I was in Burma, um, which, is, which was another place where people were like, oh, my God, you're going to Burma, you know? Yeah. Um, is it hard to get in, by the way? I mean, you need well, like a visa or something? Now. It's different now. At the time, you could get a two-week visa, I think, at the at the airport. I could be wrong. That's what I remember. And then I overstayed it like months and months and months <laughs> and months. And then when I went out, I got stopped at the airport and they took me into a small room and uh, they charge you, basically, a few, like a few bucks a day or something. And uh-huh. um and I was like, I was worried that they wouldn't let me back in. So I said, you know, oh, is this going to be a problem? And they said, give me this big smile. And he said, oh, no, you're a very good customer. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, um, but, when it, but what was so profound was that the people there, the people were like, we thought that the world forgot about us. They were like, doesn't anyone know? I mean, and what I used to say to people at the time is I would say, imagine that we had a military coup. And that all of our rights were taken away, essentially. You're talking about Burma now? No, no. I'm saying, or Syria. I'm saying, imagine Amer- in America. No, but I mean... In Burma. In the people who thought they were in forgotten. Burma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm saying, imagine... I can do one for Syria, too. But um, <laughs> imagine that we had a military coup, and all of our rights were taken away, and we were basically... Yeah, we had nothing. <laughs> and... Um, We'd be like, we'd be in America being like, somebody's going to come, right? Like Canada's going to come or like Europe is going to come. And imagine no one came for 30 years. Like it would be weird, right? Like nobody cares. And so they felt so forgotten by the world and it broke my heart. And, um, and I just encourage people to think about that. Now in terms of Syria, what is the biggest misconception that Americans and the West have about what's going on over there? 
And what, what frustrates you the most that you have to explain over and over again? You can explain it once here. Yeah, that the, the people running... Are terrorists. <laughs> ...are running from the same people yeah. that we're afraid of. They are not those people. <laughs> they are not the terrorists. They are running from the terrorists and from the violence. So they're mostly families with normal lives, you know, and they had homes and they had jobs and they had kids in school and pets and then they lost everything. And you can argue about, you know, whether it was the CIA or whether it was this or whether it was that or whether it was Russia or whether, but, it, but the people are just regular people like you and me who had everything taken from them and who would much rather have stayed in their country. And now basically their lives are completely screwed. What, what countries have been the best in bringing people over and giving them housing or accepting refugees? I think Germany and Switzerland. And the worst? So and none of the Middle East countries have I taken mean, I any? I like America. No, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries. Lebanon took a quarter of their population now is Syrian refugees. And same with jo Jordan took millions of refugees. And then we take, what, tens of thousands? You know, I was gonna, America's taken 10,000. I was going to ask you, what is America's policy on this? And is there any kind of movement now or anybody kind of doing something in Washington to try to accept more? There are people trying, but mainly our position has been like, la, 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 it's far away, la, 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 no, 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 wall. Um, I think that's the main policy of the government. And then they were like, oh, we're going to be magnanimous and take 10,000 refugees, you know, out of the, like, 12 million. And, um, and just spread them around state by state? Or is well, it, how does did, that work? What they did was funny. They took, like, 1,200. And then nine years later, over 10 years, they were going to take 10,000. And then now, like, the time has gone by. And now they're taking, like, 9,000 this year, which is why we have 500 coming to Phoenix next month. Okay, and so now that was like the city of Phoenix this decided, or was it? It's October already. Yeah, so it's like Arizona or the city of Phoenix said we we want these I'm people, sure or how does that exactly, work? I'm not sure exactly how that works. I think it's determined by the IRC and the government. I don't I don't think Phoenix gets to say. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, but what is their plan? They set them up with housing. Do they give them money? What 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 happens when a Syrian ends up in Phoenix? It's different slightly from state to state as far as i understand it they arrive and they give them a small amount of money per person and they set them up in a little bit of housing that's generally temporary housing and um and they give them basic english classes and that's pretty much it so there's no like job training or anything like that or not as far as i understand it a lot of church communities have been adopting families, which has been fabulous. Well, that's nice. Yeah. And then some states you can volunteer to be a mentor through, also through church communities. Well, Pope Francis said that every Catholic parish in Europe should adopt a refugee family. It's nice of him. Mm-hmm. And is it happening? It's very Christian of him. Yeah. Is it is it on? Is it underway? I think it is. I think. I don't know about every single parish, but I, I think... A lot of the church communities have have adopted and mentored and helped a lot of refugee families. Has anybody from like I don't know, South uh, South America or Australia or any of those countries stepped up and done anything, like in terms of accepting people? 
You know, it's interesting. They're there from before, like the first wave out of Syria, like 30 years ago. Um, when I was just in Trinidad in January with, on a habitat trip, um, my I, w- I was surprised to find there was a Syrian community there. Um, but that's a good question. I don't know. I think it's pretty hard to get to South, you know, it's South America. It's like getting to America. Basically the yeah. only way well, you can apply here, they can go there too. I mean, if, 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 well, the only way, way that you can apply for asylum in America, you can, you can apply over in a camp in Turkey or Jordan. Um, and it takes a couple years to get approved and then, in order to get asylum, you need to you can apply for asylum, but you have to get here, and that's pretty hard from the Middle East. So some people have gone through Mexico and over the border illegally, and then applied for asylum, um, but not not too many. What is the hardest part as, as an NGO of dealing with the the refugees and the crisis? The the scope of the problem. So the the scope of the problem is massive. I mean, millions and millions of people. It's, it can be overwhelming. And you just do what you can. But yeah, I would say the hardest part, so for example, like, oh, the refugees want to work, you know, and there's no jobs um, in Lebanon and Jordan and Greece. You know, all these countries, you know, their economies were not so great beforehand. And so um, we want to provide work for them. But then, you know, is it legal for them to work? Is it, you know, sell things on, on online even? And so that and yeah, just working with with the with the legals within the legal structure in those countries and learning the legal structures for every country. So for people who are listening and they want to like give in some form, if if aside from money, give give. What can money. they aside from money? What can they give and money. where to do? It? <laughs> okay, <laughs> if they don't have the time to go, you know, over there and help. What aside from giving money? Is there things? I mean, is there clothes? People give, give books, uh, things or. Money is by far the most efficient and will go the farthest. So, like, because it travels easier than trying to ship well, a lot of yeah, stuff. There's a couple of factors. So, like, if we're working abroad, you know, for people want to like fill containers with clothing, but it's much more efficient. We can buy a lot more clothes over in Turkey or in Greece. And it's helpful for the local economy, which is taking such a hit from having all these people. So, it, it feels really good to support the local economy and, um, and the money dollar just goes a lot farther there. Um, the exception might be medical supplies, um, but we haven't dealt with that a lot because it's not my specialty. So, in, yeah, money's really money really 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 helps um, if you're in a in a town you know or a city where refugees are coming in. Definitely volunteer, go see them, talk to them, and then spread the word that they're not terrorists, that they're just regular families. They're actually pretty cool. Help them learn English. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, and we've had people donate like new bikes and things like that to the kids, which is really great. So, um, we're going to be doing a lot of exciting projects like that in Phoenix and also running workshops like art therapy for the kids and trauma counseling and, um, heart math and teaching meditation and things like that. So meditation, yoga, um, which are proven incredibly effective with the trauma healing. Um, so, and then I would say, educate yourself, educate yourself, um, and be really careful. Like on Facebook, a lot of people will spread a lot of conspiracy theories and things like that. And most of the time, those things have some truth and some fault, you know, some 
mistakes. And so just really educate yourself before you spread the word. Um, you know, make friends with a Muslim. Find out. Find out about other cultures. Um, travel. Travel. Travel, travel, travel. And I would actually travel to Lesbos. <laughs> so Lesbos is this tiny island off the coast of Greece. Greece. What's off the coast of Turkey? It belongs to Greece. Oh, right. And um, it is gorgeous. It's it's so sweet and wonderful. And they have taken such a brutal hit economically. And they've been so gracious and wonderful, the locals there. There's 80,000 locals. And like imagine 2,000 refugees arriving a day. And so their main industry is tourism. So I would say go take a trip to Lesbos. Um, Help their economy. Have a beautiful time. Maybe you can volunteer a little bit if you want to. It's not like before where people were kind of like having cocktails on the beach as like boats were coming up. You know, there's not so many boats coming anymore. I think that would be awkward. But um, yeah, I would say... And then helping us, you can go to onelightglobal.org. And um, on our Be the Light page is all of the ways that you can help. Um, We're also looking for schools in America that want to um, pair up with a school over there and maybe raise money to pay for tuitions for kids. That would be a wonderful way that you could help. When you see the scope of it, how do you not get, I don't know, discouraged? Not only about what's happening, but for humanity and what they can do to one another. Do you fall back on your your meditation and things like that to help you cope with all the things you see and how discouraging it is? I could not do this without my what I learned as a Buddhist nun. Could not do it. I mean, I and I saw that in a lot of other volunteers. You know that there was this sense of despair or anger, or yeah, just. They would lose themselves. I saw some people who really went over the edge. And, um, you know, beautiful people. They gave so much. They did so much. They saved so many lives. And then they lost it. And um, from my practice, I have a, a really, really deep cellular personal experience that everything is okay. That I have a, I just a really different understanding of life and death and time and... I'm not always there, but that is the ground of my being. And so it's really about also not a personal, like it's not personal. Like I just love and then I let go. I do what I can and then I let go. And I don't feel like it's up to me to save the world. I don't feel like the world needs saving. That would be pretty egoic. It's just um, the world needs love. And so we just love and then we let let go. And, um, And then also... This one is harder for me and I think most people, but like really self-care is so essential. And that's something also I learned as a chaplain. Um, one of my teachers said, you know, the the tougher things get, the less time you feel like you have for your meditation and your own practice, whatever that is for you, but the more you need it. And so that one, it's, it is hard to maintain, but I've found that it's essential and it's, it makes a huge difference to really take that time. And then for me, getting in nature, when I'm out in nature, like where we are now, I remember like, okay, it brings me back to my center. It brings me a deep sense of peace and the smallness of me and in the whole entire universe and that we are just, you know, on this ball floating in space and also how everything in nature has its place and to just keep doing what shows up in front of me. And that's why um, 
that's why I treasure it. You know, and that's why I love Sedona. And that's why the land speaks to me. Because I can go out in the desert. You know, I not see anyone for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And I need that to come back, you know, until until I don't. I think that there are saints out there, essentially, <laughs> that can just go and go and go and go. But I'm not there yet, you know. So, <laughs> so I do what I can and then I refuel and take care of myself and then I go back. It's entirely not one way, you know. Like what I get from these amazing people, the refugees themselves, who are so courageous and so loving and so generous. And that was really eye-opening too. Like, you know, I'll be in a refugee camp where people have like, here's one rubber band, have half of my rubber band, you know. Oh. And then to come back to America where people are like, this is mine. I live in paradise and I don't want to share my sponge with you. you know? I ordered a skinny latte. You know, uh, it's I... like, not that there's no shaming, you know, but it was just like, wow. It really, it's such a gift to see like, wow, I live in paradise. You know, like, whoa, whoa, dude. Yeah. I think about that when I go to these places that are uh, so much poorer. And, and and we've done nothing other than being born. It's just the luck of the draw. I mean, they've done nothing to, to, to live like they've done. They, they were just born there. Totally. That's it. Totally. And, and so you're born in this lottery, and we won it. So you said Sedona was one of those places when you went there, it just kind of spoke to you, and it felt like home. Oh, yeah. I went there thinking I was going to live there for like three months. I was like, honey, let's go. We'll just be a couple of months. And then like day two, I was like, maybe six months. And like day three, maybe a year. And then like one weekend, I was like, all right, I'm here. Other than the natural beauty, what about the town do you like so much? Oh, I have a lot of wonderful friends there. But mainly, it's the nature. I feel, hey, friends, I love you. Um, but <laughs> I mean, it's like living in a natural park. Every day, I'm like, every day is the best day. It's amazing. <laughs> and for me, it's like perfect weather. And like I said, I'm a cowgirl, so it's my it's my country. <laughs> Horse country, wide open spaces. So people have never been. It's about two hours north of Phoenix? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Two hours north of Phoenix, one out like 45 minutes south of Flagstaff. But just a little bit south of the Grand Canyon. But yeah, it's, it's cool like that too because you get like, if you're hot, you can go up to Flagstaff and be in the snow. And if you're cold, you can go down to Phoenix and roast. Famous for its red rocks and its uh, vortexes. What is a vortex exactly? I saw those signs everywhere in Sedona. Explain this to me. I get that from tourists sometimes. Actually, not in a while, but I used to get asked <laughs> a lot. And I would say, the vortex is in your heart. Um, <laughs> I think a vortex is anywhere in nature that you feel particularly open. Um, but I've also had some pretty trippy experiences that I can't explain in Sedona. Um, however... What's cool about Sedona is because it kind of got co-opted by the whole New Age scene. But actually, when the Native people lived in the area, it was a, it was always considered a sacred place. And there would be peace talks. And um, and actually, they didn't want anyone to live there. And it's it's considered one of the canyons. Boynton Canyon is considered the, the sort of Garden of Eden of one of the tribes. It's always been considered a sacred place. And I think that now there's a movement by like the Sedona Peace Committee to return it to not rather than a new age place with like crystals and vortexes, a place of peace and peace talks and um, bringing back more art and, and peace related. And so I love that I live there because it's, it's my bag. <laughs> peace is my bag. So, um, of course, in order to do that, I think they will also have to address the way that it's, you know, completely built on sacred land without permission. But yeah, yeah, I would say if it, like from purely touristy, like yeah, yeah, let's go. 
there is hiking. It's like a nature nature person paradise. So hiking, the best months to visit are October and April. And mountain biking, like mountain bikers paradise. And rock climbing in Sedona and Flagstaff. In Flagstaff, there's some world-class bouldering. Give me your top three hikes in Sedona. No way, dude. I'm not telling oh, you. Oh, they're no. secret? Yeah, okay, secret. forget it. But if you go, everyone should do Cathedral Rock. That's like, it's a touristy one, but it's unbel- it just opens your heart chakra way up. Can you give us one good restaurant recommendation? L'Auberge is my favorite. L'Auberge. L'Auberge. How about places to stay? As of January, there'll be Airbnb oh, as an option. So you can stay in a lot of my friends' homes. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of cute little vacation rentals. There's a big resort called Enchantment in Boynton Canyon, but I don't like them because they built a, a, resor- a resort in a sacred canyon. So I would say don't go there, but people <laughs> love it. Um, and then, um, yeah, there's some like upscale inns too. Um, but I would say Airbnb it. Live like the locals or go to Lobert. Oh, there's a place. Um, there's a little, like, sh- what do you call it? It's called Tlacopaki. <laughs> and it's a, um, it's got, like, stores and restaurants. There's another really good restaurant called Renee in there. Another upscale really good restaurant. Um, and then if you want, like, the Sedona experience, you have to go to Chocolate Tree. Which is a, a cafe that's like raw vegan and has like all the crystals and all this stuff. And I mean, you'll either love it or you'll hate it. Um, nobody there eats any, you know, they're all raw vegan. So they're all kind of like floating on the air. So give yourself extra time. <laughs> Takes them a lot of time. Sure. And then um, what else is super Sedona Ego up the canyon? Yeah, the canyon is just so beautiful. It gives you a different, a different feel and then um and then try to get to the creek red rock crossing is, in, is a beautiful park yeah there are so many good hikes and so many good places to go but i'm not telling <laughs> i don't know people should just travel though i've been saying that to people a lot lately people should travel it'll it'll open your mind and it also it'll give you an appreciation for what we have here and i think both of those are important so travel 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 also the world is amazing it's a freaking amazing place <laughs> And um, nature is incredible. You know, go go remind yourself what you... It's so easy to get stuck in habits and routines and in beliefs about yourself and in beliefs about life and the world. And that can just be broken open so easily. And the other thing is people are mainly nice. People are mainly nice. There are some jerks, but mainly people are nice all over the world. And governments are challenging. But people are nice. So go meet them and talk to them and... Um, it, will, it always ex- expands yourself and your world. You know? So go do it. So finally, your uh, give us those websites again for not only to give to uh, Syrian uh, refugees yeah. and your organization, Syrian, Syrian, Iraqi, Afghani. and uh, also to uh, buy your upcoming book. The organization is One Light Global, www.onelightglobal.org. Um, we should have an, a, a kick-ass website in a week or two. We have a, a medium website now, but we'll have an amazing website in a week or two. Um, please come check us out. We're doing so much good work, both in the U.S. and abroad. And, um, and there's just a lot of information there. And you can meet refugees and hear their stories and um, buy a cool bracelet, you know, put a kid through school for a year for 250 bucks. Um, so many things. Help women. Come teach a class in Phoenix. Whatever you want to do. And then... Um, it's like, you'll look back and be so glad you did. 
later. Otherwise, you're going to have to like look back and change the subject and feel crappy about yourself. And then um, <laughs> the other website is www.wildmeditation.com. And it's amazing. It will change your life in 28 days for the better, mostly. You might have some moments of like, why did I ever listen to that woman? <laughs> but later you'll thank me. And, um, <laughs> oh my God, I hate my life. You know, no, um, it's really, it's how to meditate in, in everything that you do from eating and walking and talking and listening to how to bring meditation into your relationships, how to meditate while you have sex, you know, and how to, how to use it as a tool. But it's just, it's a very different way of looking at meditation <laughs> how to meditate while your dog is licking your licking face, your face as, as we speak. And, um, He's actually the main guru for the, for the course. <laughs> so that's wildmeditation.com and how to reconnect to to who you truly are, both in a mystical sense, but also not in a mystical sense. In just a sense of everything that you are, you are because somebody taught you to be that way. So why not figure out what you would really do? I mean, one of my t- favorite teachers says, <laughs> if you were raised by tribal hen touchers, you would think it was totally reasonable to go lob someone's head off and shrink it. So you know, all the things you think are okay or not just they oh, gives you a little space to question them <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> come, come up with what's really true for you well thank you for doing this i know you have a long drive and it was great meeting you i'm glad you invited me i'm so glad you came that was really fun <laughs> it was wonderful meeting you you too next time i'm in sedona i know where to go yeah and i'll even tell you some some not all but the, I'll tell se- you the some secret hikes the, secret hikes. <laughs> the <laughs> local right. hikes zoe wild everybody yeah.